Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're going to love today's episode because you're going to learn how to make Alzheimer's disease optional without resorting to drugs. We go really deep on a bunch of different things you can do. And the cool thing is it's not just about Alzheimer's. It's about what you can do to make your brain work better, even if you're years away from even thinking about Alzheimer's. So if you want to hack your brain, you want it to work better, you want it to work better now, uh, this is the show for you. So listen through all the way to the end and you'll just get a constant flow of new information that's helpful for you. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that the same chemical that makes you happy when you hug makes you attractive to dogs. And researchers in, in Helsinki at the Canine Mind Research Project found that oxytocin makes dogs interested in smiling human faces. And that if you have that cuddle chemical in your system, it makes angry human faces seem less threatening. So you can scowl at a, do- at a dog if your oxytocin levels are high and the dog won't be afraid of you. But if you look mean at them and you don't have oxytocin, they'll want to bite you. And oxytocin is the chemical in your brain tied to affection and trust and community building. And in dogs, it's probably one of the reasons they can work with us the way they do. And the test went like this. Each group of dogs was shown smiling faces and angry faces on a computer screen because, yes, dogs use computers. And each dog was tested twice, uh, once under the influence of oxytocin and once without. And the dog's eye gaze and pupil dilution was measured. And this is a first of a kind test like it. It shows that our best friends, dogs, form relationships the same way that your actual best friends do. And this is why you should never kick a dog. Dogs are nice. I like dogs. My dog's named Merlin. All right, there. That was your second cool fact of the day. All right, before we get into the show, you might not know this, but Bulletproof Brain Octane, which is that amazing oil that turns into ketones when you use it, part of Bulletproof Coffee, you can get it in a three-ounce bottle. You can refill and take with you on the road, or you can get it in new travel packs. These are single-serving little foil packets, kind of like a ketchup pack, but cooler looking, that let you just throw it in your pocket, throw it in your briefcase, throw it in your purse, and take it with you. It's totally changed my travel life. So go to bulletproof.com and get one of the things that lets you take it with you. I put it on my salad, I put it on my sushi. Pretty much if I go out to eat at a restaurant, I pour some brain octane on there so I don't get the food cravings that cause when you don't have enough high quality fat in your diet. All right, let's get into today's show. Today's guest is Stephen Masley, who's a medical doctor. He's also a big fan of good fat. In fact, he wrote several books on topics really close to my heart, like 10 Years Younger, The 30-Day Heart Tune-Up, Smart Fat. And we're going to talk today about his newest book, which is called The Better Brain Solution. It's all about improving cognitive performance, talk about your brain, preventing memory loss. Stephen, welcome to the show. Dave, I'm delighted to be here. And we've known each other for a while uh, through our friend uh, JJ Virgin and Michael Fishman. And uh, it's, it's been a pleasure to just get to socialize with you and now to get you on the show to talk about brains. Because there's a, a small group of doctors who are really focusing on like the deep science of brain. Guys like Dr. Amen, uh, guys like you. And I, I'm honored to get to have you on the show. And I want to know, given that you're also kind of a fat guy and a heart guy. What's turning you into a brain guy? Well, in our clinic, we measure a hundred aspects of aging. And we look at how nutrition, food, fitness, all, all these things, stress, how they impact our brain. And we've found that the same things that improve your heart function and help you shrink artery plaque improve brain performance. They increase your brain processing speed by 25 to 30%. So we've actually published that people can have a dramatic improvement in brain function. And I'm really excited to get to share that. I've talked about how I raised my IQ more than 20 points. And a lot of traditional uh, sort of uh, white lab coat neuroscience people say, that's not possible. What's your take on it? Can we really raise our IQ by some meaningful amount of points? Well, I think there's actually pretty good data now that we can increase our brain IQ a few points. Um, I think the thing that impacts our productivity and the thing that puts us at risk for memory loss isn't even those IQ points we can mm-hmm. increase. It's our brain processing. How quick is our brain? How well do we process information? It makes us more productive, less forgetful, sharper, quicker. Um, 
So yes, I totally agree. We can boost IQ a few points, but more importantly, I think we can get a big jump in productivity and brain function. It's funny because IQ isn't that good of a measure anyway, compared to all the other things you can do. It's just the most famous measure. And uh, Dr. Amen said, well, you know, I've seen people with metabolic problems specifically in that case it was around toxic mold they'll lose 15 iq points and they fix the problem boom they get the iq points back so maybe they were always there but they were just they were not tapped into they were they were locked they they had been taken away but they at least were present at one point and do you see that this happen as brains age or when people get toxins that their their perceived intelligence goes down like 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 what happens in a brain that isn't working right well, I mean, as we age, we lose a little bit of speed. That's, I think, a normal process. Yeah. What's not normal is like if you get, you know, toxins in, that impact your brain or you're a nutrient deficiency or you really eat the wrong foods and you poison your brain, then you have a, your function plummets. And, we, and that you can get back. So we can always get back, I think. The brain fortunately has some spring. And in contrast to what they told us in medical school, the brain can rebuild and reform and grow. We've actually shown that 80-year-olds can increase the size of their brain if they do the right thing. So I, I, I'm in complete agreement with you. So which drugs do we need to take? I don't know that we need very many drugs. <laughs> I was hoping you were I, and my laugh. goal in my clinic is to get people off most of their drugs. <laughs> exactly. So. <laughs> uh, so it's it's funny because you know the the way, especially in medical schools, where the first line is sort of what's the what's the medication for that? What you're talking about is lifestyle intervention, which is uh, which is awesome, and that's why I like your book. One of the things that happened in my sort of my story is that in my mid twenties, I made. Six million dollars. I ended up losing it when I was twenty-eight, and it was a really stressful time in life. I was living in a house with large amounts of stachybotrys, the toxic mold. I had high mercury levels, and my brain just stopped working to the point that, like, I went to the doctor. I'm like, I can't remember my meetings. Like, I felt like I had early onset Alzheimer's or cognitive something or another. So I basically had an old person's brain, and I was fortunate I got to recover that because I spent a long time. Uh, starting at that time, I started working with an anti-aging research and education nonprofit. So my the guys I was learning from were 88 years old, <laughs> and like they were fixing their brains. I'm like maybe I could do this too, and it totally restored uh, my ability to to function. In your book, though, I and mean, this is you know, 20 years later, you've got a five step solution to change your brain, and no one had a five steps thing back then. So there was a lot of what the heck am I doing? Can you outline the five steps so people listening right now can say, all right, what are like what are the big things that matter? Okay, so the big things that matter, one, food. You know, I like food and I want to eat well, but there's foods that improve our brain function and foods that hurt it. Number two would be nutrients. There's some specific nutrients we've got to add and a couple more we could add that'll actually give us some extra little extra boost. Um, three is for fitness. I mean, your physical activity is so important for your brain. I think I can't emphasize that enough. For stress management, that we really have, if we have profound unmanaged stress, our cortisol shoot high. It shrinks our brain. We do not want to shrink our brain. And five is toxins. There's toxins out there that really hurt the brain. I mean, I think the brain's one of the most sensitive parts of the whole body. And it's identifying some of these specific toxins and avoiding them. So, and here's the key. When people study just one tiny aspect of this, they might see a little improvement. They could argue over whether it's significant or not, you know, different scientist studies. But when you add all five parts together, it's synergistic. Wow. Now you get a big boost, a dramatic improvement. And that's what studies are. I think the latest study, like the finger study out of Finland, Finland, it's showing that when we add these different aspects all together, we get a dramatic improvement and we don't have to argue and quibble about the little parts, whether they're really significant or not. That was, it's funny. You sort of read my mind on what my next question was going to be. And it's that I get this a lot. How do you know that what you're doing matters? Which one of them is the one that's important? And you've got five things. And it sounds like you can't say which one is the most important. That's tough because the programs that only try one don't get nearly as good a results. I mean, the analogy I always use, if you're going to climb 20 feet up in the air, you know, on a 20 foot ceiling to change a light bulb and you got four or five, you know, prongs to the ladder, 
which one do you care that you care about all of them? Right. It's not which is the most important. The ladder's coming down if one goes out. So I, I like the analogy, like I'm going to invent bread. So I baked the water, nothing happened. I baked the yeast, nothing happened. I baked the flour, nothing happened. Therefore, there is no bread. Like sometimes in biology, we have systems instead of sole components, right? How did you come up with these five things? Like, like, just walk me through the path of discovery. So in our clinic, we make recommendations. So it really, I mean, it started back almost 20 years ago when I really looked at a comprehensive program to transform lives. I, I probably read over 3,000 articles. I'm definitely a nerd. Oh, yeah. I like looking stuff up. I studied, I researched, I identified what steps would really work. We put them in our program. And over the last 15 years, we had over 1,000 people go through the program. And now we can look at, of the hundreds of people who've shrunk their artery plaque, got off their meds, improved their brain speed and performance, what predicts the improvement? And that's really what the Better Brain Solution is about. The research we've done, what's been shown to work, what are the critical steps that improve your brain? That's really the focus for these five steps. And we've kind of looked at them, we've researched them, um, and it works. I mean, it's we've got published data that we can really help people. And I'm, I'm really thrilled to get to share this. You also talk a lot about memory loss and diabetes. And I was pre-diabetic. My fasting blood sugar was 117 in my mid-20s. Wow. And I mean, I was high risk of stroke and heart attack, too. I, I was old when I was young, right? Uh, so that, that's why I've such a zeal for what I do. Cause I'm like, I don't want to go back to that. Cause it sucks to get old with the diseases that we used to think were part of being old. Like they don't have to be. So, but what, what specifically around blood sugar and diabetes, why does that affect your brain? Cause a lot of people don't know this. Well, that's such an important question. Cause I think a lot of people know that diabetes impacts their heart attack risk and not their brain. But here's the, here's the amazing thing. So when our sugar goes up, insulin pushes to push and store that energy in the cell. So insulin's the storage hormone that stores sugar in our cells. But if we keep eating too many refined carbs, we're not active enough, we're nutritionally unbalanced, we're stressed, any of those, any of those or all of those, our blood sugars go up, our insulin goes up, and eventually the cell is full. It can't store any more energy and it becomes resistant to insulin's message. When we look at brain cells, when the body becomes insulin resistant, the brain cells are unable to utilize glucose, sugar as energy. So when you do a functional MRI and you look at a PET scan of the brain and you try to look at um, the brain burning energy like fuel, it, nothing's happening. When an insulin resistant patient, someone with diabetes, it's just quiet. The brain is dysfunctional. So when we eat more sugar, one, our brain cells become dysfunctional and they're at risk if that's prolonged of dying. Two, here's the really weird thing. There's an enzyme that removes insulin because if our insulin was too high and our sugar levels drop, we could have a seizure. And, you know, for 100,000 years, that means someone would eat us, you know, while we're down on the ground. But the same enzyme that removes insulin removes beta amyloid and beta amyloid is the protein that forms with Alzheimer's disease, this sticky inflammatory protein. So when we have too much sugar, our insulin goes up, and that means we're not able to remove beta amyloid when we're eating too many refined carbs. So that's a really big problem to think that all these, Amer half of baby boomers and 30% of all adults are insulin resistant, and they're growing beta amyloid the protein associated with Alzheimer's disease at an accelerated rate. That's a big problem. That's why diabetes, diabetes rates are skyrocketing and that's what causes Alzheimer's memory loss rates to skyrocket. We're predicting that the rate of Alzheimer's disease is gonna double 200% increase in just the next 12 to 15 years. It's on a national level, it's terrifying. But the good news is we can stop this. Yeah, if if you and I and, and this group of other people working in this field do our jobs right, that ain't gonna happen. But like seriously, <laughs> it's not that hard to prevent this from happening. It's just a matter of knowledge that we already have getting out there. It doesn't require new discoveries, right? Like we, we know enough to fix it. Do you agree with that? 
I totally, okay. yeah, I think we can prevent probably 90% of memory loss in Alzheimer's disease. Just dealing with blood sugar alone without the other steps, we could probably get rid of 60%. <laughs> but I, I agree with you. You know, it's our, we've got to get our message out because this is a national disaster unless we make a change. And I don't foresee that happening with traditional healthcare. No, it, it's not going to happen. But we can make Alzheimer's mostly optional. There's probably a few corner cases, especially around traumatic brain injury or something, where maybe you've just had enough damage. It's going to take heavy lifting to fix it. But for the vast majority of people listening who are 50 plus worried about Alzheimer's, I, I, like, well, let me ask it this way. If you're in that category, like, all right, either my parents are there or I might be getting there uh, uh, to the point where I should start paying attention to it. How much work is it to do this stuff? Like how many hours a day do I need to spend? How much money is it? Just kind of walk me through how hard do you have to work? I don't think it's that hard to prevent it. I really don't. I what mean, if you already five have easy the steps, better brain solution. Now, if, you, if you're in the early parts, um, it's going to... Basically, by the time you're already noticing memory loss, your brain has shrunk. I mean, it's basically shrinking like a grape to a raisin. So the longer you wait, the harder it is to change that. You know, someone with Alzheimer's, I have a five-step plan, but if someone had Alzheimer's disease, I think we're looking at, you know, more something like a 30, 40-step plan. A lot more steps, a lot more expense, um, harder to do. My emphasis on preventing it, or if someone's mild, getting them out of it and getting that boost, that 25, 30% improvement in their brain function. Um, if you really wait till you're really disabled, dementia, Alzheimer's means disabled with memory loss. That's pretty tough. I still think we can reverse that, but we're talking like a $10,000, $12,000 workup, um, 35 steps to follow. Um, I think we can make improvements on it, but I'd much rather have prevented people from getting there or pick up the ones who have just, I'm feeling a little forgetful, subjective impairment, not disabled impairment. I mean, that's right. I think we can help so many people and we've got to make a better impact. How bad are French fries? Fried sugar and toxic oil. <laughs> I mean, do, do I like them? Yes, but I like sugar too, but I just try, you know, don't, and and heroin, know, right? There's heroin, just some things that are toxic. Yeah, heroin's good, except, well, we, we know not to use that. So just because you like it doesn't mean you have to use it. <laughs> yeah, so they're really, I mean, it's like French fries would be worse than eating table sugar with a spoon. Oh, well said. And this is one of those things that, that's so critical and so easy. Like, look, if you care about your brain and you don't want to get Alzheimer's disease, when you go to the restaurant, if it says fried, it's not food. So don't eat it. It's that easy. All right. Next question for you. You have a choice. Okay. Something made out of out of you know whole wheat flour, right, and fried food. Which one would you eat? Neither. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, flour by itself. I don't see any difference between any time you take a flour, whether it's white flour, whole yeah. wheat flour. It has the same glycemic load as table sugar. So right there, it's just harmful. Now, fried food. I mean, if you could be frying it in like um, avocado oil and you've only heated the oil for like two minutes and it hasn't been damaged yet. Okay, mate, but most, fr you know, most, most fried food is just basically, it's embalming fluid. It's hydrogenated trans fat. And you're being embalmed when you eat it. So, I mean, neither are good. Neither are good, okay. It's like an <laughs> now, I, I'm always looking at promising treatments for Alzheimer's disease. I have a brain that functions better than it ever has in my life. My hippocampal volume is 88th percentile, but I'm still like, I don't want to go back to the way I used to feel. So this is like a hobby at this point rather than yes. I'm, I'm addressing something. And we know that having ketones present has a very powerful effect on Alzheimer's disease. So anything you can do to raise your fat burning molecules in, in the body helps. But I've also looked at intranasal insulin as uh, probably the second most effective treatment for Alzheimer's after ketones. Uh, what do you think about it? Have you used it in your clinic or come across just the cognitive impacts, not the systemic impacts of that? Well, I mean, I'd really like to see some long-term data on that. I'm not a big fan of upping insulin levels. So I, I can see that it would, in, it would help potentially improve brain sugar um, glucose levels. So I can see in theory why there might be some attraction to that. 
Um, I'd much rather someone uses MCT oil and gets their ketones from, you know, doing a partial fast a few days a week, skip breakfast, have your bulletproof coffee in the morning instead of, you know, I, you know, I'd much rather see a partial fast um, several days per week, add some extra MCT oil to get your fats up. To me, that's a much more effective treatment than using intranasal I, insulin. I will admit that I, I tried intranasal insulin a few times well fasted to see what it would do for my brain. It's a pretty nice cognitive enhancer, but like you said, if you have insulin levels that are high all the time in your brain, you aren't going to have your insulin degrading enzymes working very well, and if you did that every day, you might not like the levels of plaque that you build up over time, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so that that you you exactly got my concern. So yes, you might in the short term be sharper, but in the long term, are you growing more beta amyloid? I mean, maybe not, but no one's studied that. I'd like to see them study it. And in the meantime, do something we know that's a slam dunk works. So What about nicotine? It not uh, smoking we know is going to give you all sorts of brain problems, but nicotine itself it seems like it does some interesting things for blood flow. Have you seen any studies or anyone in your clinic who uses nicotine uh, maybe to lower the risk of Alzheimer's, even though smoking raises the risk of Alzheimer's? Well, we've actually published on this. So this is really interesting. You know, the perception is nicotine increases focus and your ability to pay attention. And actually, when we've done testing on smokers, we've noticed that on average, a smoker has a higher ability to focus and pay attention. But their their executive processing speed drops. So it's it's a playoff. You know, yes, you can focus better, but your ability to process information and do executive like thinking and problem solving decreases and overall neurocognitive um, function dropped. When so, they're, yes, motor speed went that's down. That's when they're smoking though, right? Because they're getting carbon monoxide and all. Well, yeah, they're getting some. I think most of it's probably, yes, and there's tar yeah. and there's other chemicals in there. So, and there have been, you know, studies that maybe nicotine could increase IQ points, a couple points. So, I mean, but I, I have found, at least for in, in people using tobacco on a regular basis, yes, their attention goes up, but more importantly, uh, more functionally importantly, um, their overall cognitive performance seems to drop. That's a, a huge thing. I would feel really comfortable if a family member came to me and said, look, I just found I have Alzheimer's. I would be like, maybe you should try a nicotine patch <laughs> uh, because it might help to turn things back on. And there's some very interesting effects there separate from smoking or even chewing where you get all the other crap that's in tobacco that's bad mm -hmm. for you. But that, that's kind of cutting edge stuff. And there's some reductions in inflammation that can happen from that mitochondrial function. And I just that's something that's very controversial in the medical field because we have this big anti-smoking and the idea that tobacco equals nicotine, even though medically nicotine's uh, not the same thing. So it so sounds like you don't have strong data on that one yet. Okay. I don't. And I really, I, I, if someone had Alzheimer's, I would be willing to try a whole bunch of things and see what worked. I agree with what you What about there. caffeine, Mother Nature's other smart drug? Well, caffeine does clearly have some improvement in brain processing speed and neurofunction, but coffee's even better for you because even <laughs> yeah. decaf coffee has shown to improve your brain function. Yeah. And if you do caffeine and decaf, well, caffeinated coffee, it's even better. So, yeah, I, you know, there is, it is, I think, when we really look at the data. So I looked at almost 15 studies globally that looked at, caffeine intake and cognitive function, executive performance, memory loss. They treated people who had memory loss. I think the overall take is it's a J shape, which means a little bit of coffee is really good for your brain. And there is a point where there's just too much. A pot right. is clearly too much. It's not going to help. It's going to make it worse. So um, in fast metabolizers, I think two or three cups of coffee a day is great for your brain. In slow metabolizers, probably not more than two, one or two cups of coffee, I think is good for your brain. And it's actually good for your heart too, um, if you use those same dosage reg regimens. Uh, we do have to, I think there's that little distinction be how, how well you metabolize it. You can do genetic testing for that, but most people just know it intuitively. So um, a little coffee is good for you, better so than the caffeine. When I read the probably the same studies you did as I was writing Headstrong, I actually 
have been doing two cups of coffee a day since I came about Bulletproof Coffee. So I, I do you know, one cup of Bulletproof in the morning and maybe sometimes Bulletproof, always the same beans, but maybe black, maybe not at lunch. And then after that, I switched to decaf and I was sort of forced myself to make the habit of drinking two to three cups of decaf. I do one after dinner, one mid-afternoon. And as long as it, it tastes good, like it's good decaf, I'll plug my own there because it's lab tested and all, but uh, I actually noticed a difference. Like, like I actually started to like it and look forward to it, whereas my entire life I'm like, blah. But the studies did show like the black stuff in coffee is good even without the caffeine. Yeah, those flavonoid, I mean, those flavonoid pigments have a lot going for them. I mean, flavonoid, they're in many, you know, in cherries and berries, in dark chocolate, in coffee, and green tea, too. So I try to have two cups of coffee in the morning, and then I try to have a cup or two of matcha tea for the extra theanine in the afternoon. That is an awesome recommendation. Green tea flavonoids are important. In fact, we just came out with something called polyphenomenal, which is uh, 10 different kinds of polyphenols in capsules that include some green tea. And I also drink matcha when I get a chance. Like the idea here and the recommendation that I would make for people listening is lots of herbs, lots of spices, chocolate, coffee, tea, and probably not red wine, though, even though it has some things in it because of the alcohol. What's your take on getting your flavonoids from wine? Should people be doing wine because it's, quote, good for the brain or not doing wine because it's got alcohol that shrinks the hippocampus? Like, like where do you well, come? <laughs> well, d different types of alcohol have different effects. Okay. So clearly, I don't get hard liquor and beer have no benefit for your brain. Yep. And in excess, they're definitely harmful. No, I don't, I don't see any. So sorry for those beer and, <laughs> you know, bourbon drinkers. Apologize. Just ruined your day. But I mean, that's the bottom yeah. line. I mean, I guess if you do, just keep it moderate. Red wine, though, I think there's a little more controversy there. Most of the studies I've reviewed, and I've looked at at least a dozen studies that looked at red wine intake in France, in Europe, in the U.S., in New York, in Canada. If you're drinking one or two servings of red wine, like with dinner, could have benefit. Um, I, and, and it didn't... Some of them have even shown there's no drop in, you know, the hippocampus size on imaging. But, I mean, alcohol is a double-edged sword for anybody. A lot of people cannot drink one serving a day. They have one and it ends up with a bottle, and that's absolutely harmful. So, and, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to, you know, say control yourself like that. So if you could have, I'm okay. I'm, I can't say that evidence is conclusive. Most alcohol, minimize it, avoid it. Um, red wine, I mean, that's one area. I'm, I'm thinking one serving a day with dinner might be a good thing for the brain, but we still have more research to do on that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a tough call. I, I enjoy wine. And one of the things that we know is bad for your brain is glyphosate. And some studies have shown that pretty much all California wine, including organic, is contaminated with glyphosate. And then there's the notion of these fermentation toxins that also inhibit cognitive function. And American standards are much more lax than European. So I, I, when I drink, I'll drink European wines, even though you know, I used to live in California. Sorry, my Napa wine friends. Um, there are some good California wines, but uh, most of them aren't tested yet. And I usually go to you know, my friends at Dry Farm. Uh, you can go to, mm -hmm. uh, let's see, bulletproof.com slash wine. That's actually the stuff that I'll drink when I'm drinking. But I'm still, I, I'm not confusing myself that I'm doing it for my brain or that it's good for me. Uh, I just enjoy it. And I would encourage, I think, like what you're saying, it's controversial. It, it may be okay. It may be not harmful, but probably not something you want to do a bottle of, right? Absolutely not. <laughs> Okay. Now, how much, how much do you drink? Another pigment that's really good for you, I got to throw in there, is greens. Oh, yeah. We haven't mentioned green yet. And so I think of all the foods, probably the one food that has the biggest bang for when you eat them. If people eat one cup of green leafies a day, on average, their brain is 11 years younger than someone eats none. Yeah. 11 years. I mean, that's a lot. So we definitely, sh I, I think people should be eating three cups of greens a day and hopefully one of them is like cruciferous vegetables too. But oh, yeah. um, I'm, so I'm definitely into, you know, another pigment. I mentioned blueberries, dark chocolate, coffee, 
Um, but greens should really be in that conversation on the foods we want to add. All right. This is going to be a fun question for you. And I'll preface it. I don't think kale is nearly as good a superfood as coffee. And when I eat kale, uh, I tend to get, especially raw kale, I tend to get pain in my joints. And I looked into sort of the plant defense systems and, and the, mm -hmm. the polyphenols and flavonoids that we just talked about are good. Those are plant defense systems, caffeine, nicotine, plant defense systems. Like these are things we can use, but a lot of plant defense systems can kill you. Like they're there to keep you from eating the plants. Um, when I try to give kale to my sheep, they spit it out. <laughs> uh, like, like they don't want to eat it. Same thing with like beet greens. And these are things that people can eat, but they're higher in one of the plant defense systems called oxalic acid. I don't, yes. I don't know of studies of oxalic acid and Alzheimer's, but I do know for kidney stones, joint pain, and, and things, even vulvodynia, this you know, like painful uh, pain in the, in the sex organs for women. Um, it, it's a problem. So what do you recommend people do for the type of greens or for the preparation of greens if they want to eat a lot of greens? Well, I usually like blanching them or lightly steaming them. You if you them. overdo it and they're soft, you've lost the, you know, the cancer fighting abilities mm -hmm. disappear when you make them soft and yuck. Um, so I, I actually think they're easier to digest if they're either blanched or lightly steamed or lightly sauteed. Um, but obviously don't overdo it. But there are people who clearly have food sensitivities. I oh, mean, yeah. look at, you know, the nightshade group. You know, generally speaking, lycopene and tomatoes are really good for the population, but there's definitely certain people out there who react to them. So if you react to it, I mean, whether it's dairy or gluten or nightshades, I mean, if you react to it, you have to avoid it. I think everybody's got their own unique sensitivities and some people are sensitive to a lot and some people are sensitive to very little. So it's I think it varies a great deal, but um, it does. Well, if, if But I actually think they're easier to digest when they're lightly cooked than eating them raw. I don't, I'm not a big kale fan when it's raw, but if I saute it with a little olive oil and garlic, okay, I'm in, I'm, 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 I'm going for <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I'll, I'll eat some too if, if, it's, uh, if it's cooked, but I won't eat masses of it. The little hack there that I came across uh, when working on the, the research uh, for my last book was that if you eat a little bit of radish or a little bit of raw whatever broccoli along with the cooked broccoli even if it's overcooked a little bit that you get the enzyme that's necessary to unlock the the dim and indole 3 carbonyl and all the good compounds that are in there uh, is that something that you've you've considered or something that you make a practice of well i like that miranase that um the sulfurane sulfurophane to get sulfurophane to its active agent in the cruciferous vegetables, you need this murinase enzyme for it to work. And if you cook it too much, it's gone and you're never right. going to actually get the benefit from that food. So, I mean, some people are just taking a plain supplement, supplement, um, sulfurophane, but it, they won't convert it with, they'd have to eat like broccoli with it, yeah. but I, it's in those cell walls. So as long as it's al dente and you feel a crunch when you bite it, you're still getting it. Um, I think you're still getting enough enzyme to make that conversion. So I'm, but you're deaf if you overcook it and it starts to droop. Okay, then it's 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 ruined. Uh, a good backup plan, I'd say, put a little bit of radish on your salad. <laughs> it's it's not going to yeah, harm you. Yeah, or as you said, yeah. actually that was pretty insightful. Just eat a little bit of raw with the cooked, and then you it, it'd be if you really like your um, vegetables pa cooked past al dente. I think that was a, actually a really you know smart thing to suggest. Just eat a little bit of raw with it. That would that would work. You're up, I I completely agree there. And this is a uh, something that I've been experimenting with. I'll make a pesto. So I'll throw some walnuts or pine nuts or all the pine nuts have their own issues. We'll say American source pine nuts anyway. Uh, whatever kind of nuts you like in a little chopper thing with some of whatever I'm going to cook and some olive oil and some brain octane and salt. And then you just eat a little bit of that on everything. And then like, okay, I got the maximum vegetable extraction value I could get. And yes, you could say I'm a little obsessive, whatever. I, I don't care. Like, like I like pesto. And so if I you know, if I was going to make the food anyway, I might as well just make that little side dish. Uh, that sounded really good, by the way. Uh, it's it's pretty edible. Uh, my even my kids <laughs> will eat it, which is which is a pretty a pretty good thing. All right. Good barometer. What 
are your other top brain boosting foods? We talked about the polyphenols. We talked about green vegetables. Are there other things that you particularly- Well, fats. Okay. I mean, your brain is mostly fat and it's 40% fish oil by weight. So one, we need some source of long chain omega-3 fats, whether it's wild salmon or sardines or um, oysters or mussels, something we need omega-3 fats for our brain. It lowers inflammation, but it nourishes our brain. That's a big part of what our brain is, DHA and EPA. Um, especially DHA. And if you're vegetarian, you can even get, you can get it from seaweed extract, you know, DHA seaweed extract. So it's not, not, you know, that's essential, but we also just need plain fat, smart fats. So for me, smart fats are like avocado. I love cooking with avocado oil. Um, I put extra virgin olive oil on my salads and I drizzle them on food. I think we should be getting at least one or two tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil a day. Um, nuts, we should be eating one or two handfuls of nuts every day. Um, dark chocolate, another, it's got the pigment, but it also counts as a smart fat. Um, and then MCT oil. I mean, you can, your brain cells, even if they can't use glucose, they can use the ketones and the beta-hydroxybutyrate that's in MC. Now it's not, I think people think of coconut oil as, but coconut oil is only like 20% right. of these medium chain, you know, um, these medium chain triglycerides that the brain can use. So yes, I think coconut oil is a healthy fat, but it's not as potent as MCT oil. I think we need the omega-3 fats and we need the MCT fats and we need the, um, the um, omega-9 fats like from olive oil and avocado oil. And um, I think we need all of those. So all of those fats Notice I didn't say, you know, vegetable oil, and I certainly didn't say hydrogenated oil, and don't fry your food and damage the oil. Um, I gotta say though, that when you're having oil, it's gotta be cooked at the right temperature, yes. because if you overcook it, you you turn it into hydrogenated fat, you turn your oil into embalming fluid. So it's very, you know, so that's why for like sauteing, I would use avocado oil or ghee or, um, I know I, I, I save coconut oil for like low heat, extra virgin olive oil for low heat or no heat. Um, I think it's very important to use the right oils and use them at the right temperature. I, I tend to look at, can I cook it with water and almost no oil and add the oil at the end? Because the less you heat the oil, the better it is for your brain. And it's funny, it totally. tastes better if you add the olive oil at the end because stuff sauteed in olive oil still gets a bitter taste as the oil starts to break down. So it may not be harmful yet, but it's not as good as it would have been because things like hydroxytyrosol uh, and other things do break down before the oil itself breaks down. So if you want those, those delicate flavonoids, even if you saute it, add some more afterwards to get all the good stuff, right? Yeah. If I'm going to cook with an oil, I probably cook with avocado because it's got a 520 degree smoke point. And then I'll, it's really a gentle, subtle oil. And then I can sprint, you know, sprinkle on some extra virgin olive oil when I just at the very end, when I put it to simmer before I turn it on. Uh, there you go. That, that's such good advice. And now this is actually really cool because you're going to be able to answer this better than any other doctor I've ever, or, ever talked to. Have you ever seen a commercial kitchen that does that? Like what we just talked about, you know, cooking the right oils and adding a little bit at the end. <laughs> I wish I could say yes, but no. I, I know one place. We're it's in Santa Monica. You know, we, we do that kind of stuff at the Bulletproof Coffee Shop. Uh, but you actually did an internship at the Four Seasons Restaurant in Seattle, which is crazy. I yes. mean, you're, you're an MD doing this. Tell me about what, what you learned and why you did that. So I was doing research on group protocols for helping people reverse diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, cognitive problems. And I was, I was one of the first physicians in the country back in the 1990s to see 15, 20 patients at a time in a room, had the similar diagnosis and come up with a lifestyle plan to reverse that. And at the end of a year, we had all these improvements. We had people who had on insulin shots for uncontrolled diabetes were off all their meds and their blood sugars were normal. And, but, but here's what my patient said to me. They said, if you'll just give me some good recipes, that's all I'll cook. I don't need to know all this information about food. Give me a recipe that's easy to follow. I can find the ingredients in the store and it tastes great. And that's all we're gonna eat. <laughs> and I, it was like a light bulb. And I said, okay, I got to get better recipes. 
So first I went to Cafe Flora in Seattle. I spent a summer working. I took a wow. summer sabbatical and I worked like 50 hours a week in a restaurant just to kind of get some hang of it. And it was actually really fun. And I, I, I worked really hard. And they said, hey, you should do a chef internship. You would qualify. I go like, well, don't you have to go to like cooking school for like three years? And they said, uh, you're a doctor. You write cookbooks. You could qualify. So I applied and I got in. I spent a year. Now I had to go back to work. But um, I spent three evenings per week, the evening shift, like, you know, three to 1 a.m. And every other weekend for a year doing a chef. And it was awesome, you know, learning to make that was one of the places I learned that if you're cooking like garlic and oil and it starts to, if you burn it at all, it gets bitter. Yeah. And when they said it gets bitter, you've ruined the flavor. And I thought I've oxidized it and I've damaged the health properties. But I learned a lot from excellent chefs about how to prepare food so it tastes great. And I, so I always put recipes in my books. And that's a big part of my message is Let's make it easy. You know, the Better Brain Solutions got 50 recipes, delicious, easy to make, and they boost your brain function. So I, I love your recipes. You know, it's kind of the same concept. I think that's that's how we make it approachable and easy for people to follow. It, it's tough because at a restaurant, and I'd say this because now that, that Bulletproof has the restaurant, uh, I've learned more about this than, than I, I knew. The average place, you order vegetables, they give you three spears of asparagus. And the reason they do that is the cost of vegetables, especially organic vegetables, is high. And they don't want to give you too many. And so I like to order a plate of vegetables at a restaurant. And then I'll say, yes. if you have good fats, like actual real olive oil that's not cut with canola oil, and most of it is. Uh, if not, I, I bring my own brain octane. I pour that on there. Uh, sometimes I'll bring my own butter even, and uh, if, if necessary, just to get some sort of undamaged natural fats in there. But uh, most restaurants just won't do that. They won't give you enough vegetables no matter what. So what do you order when you sit down at a restaurant and you look at the menu now that you've worked in restaurant kitchens and things like this, what's your typical like go-to meal at a restaurant? So I'm going to, I look at it, the whole menu is I'm not going to usually order an item on the menu. <laughs> I'm going to look at for a clean, I'm going to look, what would yeah. be the cleanest, freshest protein on there? I don't want something that's from a feedlot. <laughs> it's got to be pasture raised, you know, cage free, wild. Um, that's usually easiest to do probably with if it says wild seafood on there, that's the easiest to pick. I'm going to double or triple a vegetable portion. I'm going to ask them to sprinkle some extra virgin olive oil on it after that item's vegetable was cooked. And I'm going to have them just skip the starch. I don't <laughs> need the bread or the pasta or the rice. Just, you know, in, you know, I'll get a, the, I usually get a salad with uh, Italian vinaigrette. So a salad with Italian vinaigrette. I'll pick the cleanest, best looking protein on the menu. I'll double or triple whatever other vegetables I see elsewhere. I'd say I'd like these. And then sprinkle, you know, and maybe if they've got some nuts, they could sprinkle some nuts on it for a little crunch, a little garnish, extra, you know, extra garlic, extra ginger. Um, spices and herbs. I'm big. Spices and herbs are anti-inflammatory. I think we've got to add a lot more Italian herbs, curry spices, paprika, um, ginger and garlic to our food all the time. So that, that's what I usually do in a restaurant. And, um, you know, you couldn't do that 10, 15 years oh, yeah. ago. But today it's so easy just to walk in, pick your protein, double your vegetables, skip the starch, order a salad, Boom. I'm you know, sorry. if if we were going out to eat and you ordered, I I just said, give me what he had, but hold the paprika. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yes. I, I when I actually said that, I thought, okay, but you would probably well, skip the paprika. The reason for that is um, it's a nightshade, but more importantly, paprika is the number one source of mycotoxins in spices. Like it's the moldiest of all the spices. So uh, quite often, unless it's a super high end organic, a carefully treated paprika, you might feel different after you eat it. Uh, and not know why. Uh, and if it's a paprika extract, that's just MSG. You got to skip that stuff, right? 
Yes, no, I get our, the one we use at home would, well, in a restaurant, you're right, that would be questionable. At home, we've got this special Hungarian yeah. pepper. That, that stuff is, is good for most people, unless you're one of the, whatever, one third of people that, that might be nightshade intolerant to that species. And you might be nightshade intolerant, but fine on paprika because it's individual, right? Yes. Uh, how fun. And, and yes. just for people listening, this is exactly what people who know what they're doing with their brains do at restaurants. And now that you worked at a restaurant, what is the server going to say when someone orders that way? I smile. I'm very polite when I ask. And, you know, I just, I, I've, they yeah. don't say no, really. I mean, varies. I mean, if you're in a fast food place, well, you probably right. shouldn't be there. <laughs> There's not, they can't do anything. They could skip the rice in a fast food place. Or skip the noodles and do, and you offer to pay, you know, can I pay extra two, three dollars for an extra plate of vegetables? Fine. You know, so but in a nice restaurant, sit down, um, casual dining, even uh, usually they say, oh, excellent choice. Yeah, they don't give me a hard time anymore. Fifteen years ago, it was like I, somehow I was putting them off. And it's like, hold on a second here. I'm willing to pay you whatever the right cost is for this stuff. It's like we have this deal where and you, you always want to be polite to a server. So, you know, but the bottom line is like, look, this is what is compatible with my biology. Right. And it's not meant to be an insult to you. It's, it's not. But here's the deal. This is what I'm going to pay for. <laughs> and usually servers know, too, that if you're friendly to them and they're friendly to you, let's see, they like their job better if everyone's friendly to them and they probably get better tips, too. Uh, so I. Yeah. Oh, I'm happy to tip better too. for them. If they'll do something like that, I'll make it worth their while. And the next time I come in, they want me. As exactly. So, so take care of the people <laughs> who take care of you It is kind of the background message for this. Uh, the other trick that I found is, is if I look at a server, even at a nice, you know, star restaurant and say, I need real olive oil. It, it, can, is that real olive oil? And they'll say, oh, yes, absolutely. And you go, Thank goodness, because a lot of restaurants put canola oil in their olive oil. And if I have canola oil, I start frothing at the mouth and I'll, froth, and I'll, I'll fall down right there on the floor and start twitching. So it's really important. And they go white in the face and they come back and they're like, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. We actually have canola oil in our olive oil. We can't use that for you. I'm like, yeah, see, I told you. So I don't actually froth at the mouth. But if they think that and they know it's important, they're not going to tell you what you want to hear. They're going to tell you the truth. And and. Yeah. yeah. Usually if you throw out the line, I'm allergic to it and we'll probably have to call 911. <laughs> <laughs> that, that'll get their it attention. Will. Well, it's, it's awesome because you've done more work than I have around actually going out and working in you know a real restaurant for many hours, which is, is super cool and, and just unheard of for a medical professional to do. So kudos to you for, for doing that. Now, I'd like to hear a couple of your success stories. Like, tell me about a couple of patients who just completely turned things around. Well, just before that, though, I want to say that we've had our average patient gets mentally sharper, quicker, and improves their cognitive function. And we've done randomized clinical trials with average people, and their brain processing speed goes up 25 to 30%. That's the average response, not the best response. How do you response. measure processing speed? So we do, I use a, a, a CNS vital signs, cognitive testing. It looks at memory, attention, psychomotor speed, um, executive function, really a measure of brain processing speed. And so in milliseconds, you can have people go through algorithms and record the time for them to do that. And you can do, we do this test like yearly, we have over a thousand patients. We've been measuring yearly and we track it over time. And we can see them, people don't take care of themselves. It's like you give them a slower computer every year and they get more and more frustrated. But I like just the opposite, give them a better computer every year and their brain keeps getting better. So. I mean, that's really it. So we've had a, like, a man and a woman, I, they really come to mind. I had a guy come in once, his brother had died of a heart attack, and he was trying to do everything right, but he was really, he was reaching the point he couldn't remember his staff's names. Um, so he went on this low-fat oh. diet, um, <laughs> cut out all the fat, was eating all sorts of tuna. Um, he was, uh, he may have had some toxin effect as well. Um, and he really, people he had known for 10, 20 years, he was trouble with their names. He couldn't remember things after a meeting. We put him through our evaluation. I mean, his blood sugar was high. He was, his fitness had plummeted. Uh, he had mercury toxicity, you know, toxicity. And we really just 
put him through our regular five-step plan and he had a dramatic, he had like a hundred percent improvement. I'm just shocking. Within about six to 10 weeks, um, totally restored. His mercury levels back to normal, his cognitive function back up, his blood sugar normal. So, I mean, and that's a pretty short time for someone who thought he had Alzheimer's. Wow. I mean, he figured he was doomed and we could really turn that around. I mean, I've also seen women being come in. Um, I have one woman in particular. She couldn't lose weight. She had brain fog. She couldn't think. She'd been to doctors. They put her on antidepressants. They put her on hormones. Um, but she was insulin resistant, and she just had complete brain fog. And we put her through our five steps. And I mean, she lost 50 pounds. We took her off several of her medications. Her brain function improved 70%. She felt like, you know, fantastic. I mean, it's really restored. I mean, so we've had many stories where people were desperate and they had, here's the amazing thing. They had forgotten how good they could feel. They'd been feeling bad for so long. They forgot that what it felt like to wake up feeling fantastic, like probably you do and I do every day. So when we can restore someone's ability to enjoy life, to want to jump out of the bed in the morning and get going with their day and feel so much sharper and better. I mean, to me, that's what makes that's makes it all worthwhile. That's what gives me drive and energy to keep going is helping people who have been down in the dumps for a long time. And they say, wow, I forgot I could feel uh, that's this what gets me up in the morning, too, because I, I was there and I know what it's like to turn the lights back on. And if I can help someone, even just one person, like, like it's such a gift. What would you say to a patient who came in and said, well, I, I decided I want to eat healthy. I, I want my brain to work. I've decided to go on a vegan diet. Well, if vegan diet, I'm not opposed to a vegan diet, but you've got it to me. They've got to have smart fat. They need, you know, so I don't, I think the omega-3 component is an issue. And so they're going to have to take a DHA supplement. But I, I think everybody's going to make their own personal choices. And I don't want to be getting, you know, if you're going on a vegan diet, you've probably got something other than health that the reason they might be doing that. So I'm going to try to support that person and what they're doing, but ensure they do it as well as possible. So we're definitely going to be adding lots of smart, healthy fat. Um, and I'm happy to have them eating all those plant flavonoids and pigments. Um, I'm going to be happy that they can still probably drink tea and coffee. Uh, I don't know. It, it, <laughs> but they're it turns out plan. that. So I'm okay with that, provided okay. they get their B12 and um, they get, I mean, you have to get enough protein and you can, you can, but it's, it's actually work to get, you know, adequate protein on a vegan diet, but you can do it. So I don't think you need to be vegan. I think if you're going to add seafood, that has a big, makes it a lot easier to get your protein. You automatically get your selenium and your omega-3 and other things. So um, I tend to be more, I would, inc I'm not going to push someone who wants to be vegan, but if they wanted to add seafood, I think there's clear health benefits to that. And I don't think there's any harm to adding clean other sources of animal. Protein. That was a, a really well-crafted, politically correct answer. I, I admire that. <laughs> no, it's, uh, the, the things that you and I have more in common in our recommendations with a vegan diet, it's like, look, a plate covered in vegetables, we can all agree on that. Now, if it's a plate covered in starch, which is also vegan, I don't think we would support that very much, right? And if it's covered no. in... No, you could have, yeah. yeah, pizza for on a vegetarian diet. And I mean, exactly. what's the point? And, and then you also look at the fats. Well, you can, vegetable oil is vegan, canola oil is vegan. Uh, and like, no, those are actually not something you could eat. So if you were to go on a diet that was primarily plants, but not plant babies, you know, seeds, uh, because you get so much starch in most of those things. Uh, and then, okay, great. You're, you're better off than most people. Like, like, let's just say that better off than a standard American diet, but you might be lacking a few things. Right. And, and so it's, it's that whole sort of, you know, very tribal, you know, uh, vegan versus paleo sort of thing. It's not like that. Like the vegetables are the common element that few people get enough of. And then there's environmental and animal questions about, you know, how, what, what did the, what did the meat eat? For instance, grass fed versus not, and do you eat seafood or not? And there's all kinds of reasons you, you might choose one or the other. Uh, but it, it, it sounds like what you're saying is let's all eat a lot of plants. Plants and fat there and clean protein and lots yeah. of spices and herbs. And then sprinkle some extra virgin olive oil on it. 
and then maybe give yourself a few MCT oil for some co cognitive boost. And that's going to work uh, for everyone. And I'll tell you, get a little bit of animal fat from clean animals, and it'll do things that, that plant oils don't do. Uh, and maybe some eggs. What's your take on eggs? We've, you know, <laughs> eggs have gotten such a bad line for 20 years. It's pretty tragic. I mean, in the end, we, I mean, they don't even increase <laughs> cholesterol. So, I mean, it was pretty stupid to say, now, should they mm -hmm. be clean eggs? Should they be organically raised and, you know, wild and running around eating bugs? Absolutely. Those are the best eggs. But even bad eggs don't yeah. raise your cholesterol. And I think if they're organically raised and clean and fed the right food, you know, and free, especially if they're free range, I think they're really good for you. They have choline, which is good for your brain and um, healthy fat and a nice source of protein. So I'm actually, I mean, I'll admit that what, maybe five or 10% of people are yeah. sensitive to egg whites and they can't eat them. So, I mean, yes, if, if you're sensitive, to, we have to individualize all of our recommendations. So I got to be cognizant of that, but if you're not sensitive to egg whites, egg white, eggs are awesome food. Beautiful. I second that notion. Eggs can be incredibly restorative for your brain, especially if the yolks are runny. Yeah. Not overcooked. Yes. Don't don't ruin them by overcooking your eggs and making it yeah, like a they're hard, made of fat. Yeah. Especially yeah. high eat. I, like if you burn your yeah. fat, whether the fat's in an egg yolk, whether it's in a piece of bacon, uh, or if it's in an avocado, you, you deep fry it. Like, okay, sorry, you did that wrong. <laughs> Any other pieces of advice for people who want their brains to work really well right now, whether or not they have Alzheimer's looming? Well, I think there's key nutrients we need. Um, vitamin D, mixed folates, B12, magnesium, a probiotic, and fish oil. Those are my like top. If you're deficient in those, you're hurting your brain. I think adding curcumin, um, you know, turmeric, uh, extract and MCTO can have additional benefit. But those first six I mentioned, those are just set. Your brain doesn't function well without them. So don't be nutritionally deficient. I want everybody to go out and get their heart rate up and, you know, revved up. So they have aerobic capacity and to add some strength training. And it doesn't matter how many minutes you spend. That's not the minutes is not the key. It's about being aerobically fit and having muscle mass. And, and our data shows minutes don't count, but being aerobically fit and adding strength training both really improve brain function. Beautiful. Stress management. We need to proactively manage our stress. You know, meditation, using heart math, getting a good night's sleep. I can't emphasize enough that you put your brain at risk if you don't help it to be calm for at least a few minutes a day. One more question for you, Dr. Masley. If someone came to you tomorrow and said, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what are your three most important recommendations? What would you offer them? Oh, wow. This can okay. go beyond your medical practice. Just three most important things that matter most. Mm -hmm. Well, love in your life. I mean, you've got to be loved. You have got to share love and feel, I mean... That connection, I think, is just so important that we have to have out there. And that that actually, I mean, medically speaking, that helps manage your stress, too. When you're loved and actively sharing love and having purpose in your life, I think you can't, I can't go without that. Um, two is just the right foods. I mean... We have to we have to nourish ourselves. We got to stop poisoning ourselves with foods that have toxins in them. And we need those key nutrients and foods in our life. And we need activity. So that would be that I would put those as Beautiful. my top three, uh, you know, so love and support um, the right food. Be active. You do. I mean, it's amazing what we can accomplish. When Very we well things. said. Uh, your new book is called The Better Brain Solution. Better Brain Solution. All right. And where can people find out more about your work, Dr. Masley? Well, they can certainly, um, well, they could read The Better Brain Solution. I mean, <laughs> we've just covered a fraction of what's in here. So I love this book, I got to say. Um, but they could go to drmasley.com, D-R-M-A-S-L-E-Y.com. And I've got, you know, free information there and I'm trying to help my goal is to help people um, optimize their life and feel fantastic and make good choices every day. Well, thanks for your work on helping people see that look, Alzheimer's is an optional thing. And 
it isn't something you're going to fix with a drug, but it's something you can fix with what you put on your plate and a few other things. I appreciate that you've spent so much time in clinic and in restaurants solving this problem. And thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. If you like today's show, you know what to do. Head on over to Amazon and pick up a copy of Dr. Masley's most recent book. And while you're at it, leave a review for the book after you read it. Or when you're there, if you've already read Headstrong, leave a review for that. Authors like uh, Stephen and I, we spend thousands of hours putting together information so that you can absorb it in about four hours. It's, uh, it's a labor of love to write a book like this. And when you take the time to take 30 seconds to just leave a review, we read those, we notice, and it helps other people decide that the book's worth their time. So if you take 30 seconds to say thanks, you get the oxytocin benefits of showing gratitude, which makes you uh, smarter and better and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Okay, anyway, just do it because it's nice. <laughs> On that note, have a great day. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.